Welcome to Holistic Trauma Healing, a podcast that empowers you to heal trauma in the same way it has affected you as a whole person. I am Lindsay Lockett, your host. I have discovered a profound path to healing trauma that allows us to move out of the role of victim and into the role of empowered and conscious creator of our best possible reality. I offer hope, healing insights, and practical tips as you get to the root of how trauma has affected every part of your existence and how to weave a new web of life that isn't ruled by the past. Hey y'all, welcome back. We are in the month of June 2021. I have received some DMs from those of you who have listened to past episodes of the podcast where I have talked about how I feel like time is skipping and moving so fast that it doesn't make any sense anymore. And several of you have reported to me that you are also experiencing this phenomenon. And I don't know what it's about or what it means, but I'm just glad to know that I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. Um, So as I shared in last week's episode, we put our baby girl dog, Betsy, down on Tuesday, June 1st. I want to thank each and every one of you who sent me an encouraging and supportive email or DM, your support means the absolute world to me and I'm so grateful and I can tell you that the ceremony we had for Betsy and her entire um, end of life process, the, the whole process was just beautiful and she passed away peacefully surrounded by her people in her favorite spot in the yard on a beautiful day. And I can only hope to be so lucky when my time comes. But thank you for all of your support. We are definitely grieving in our house. It is coming in waves. But the cool thing is that we now as a family have this awareness about our emotions and trauma and how emotions want to move so that they don't get stuck in the body and become the stored traumatic energy. And so as a family, we are moving through that. And it has been a beautiful experience for us as we have had these conversations with our kids, as my husband and I have had these conversations with each other, that we are aware of our feelings. We are allowing ourselves to feel our feelings, even when it is not a convenient time to feel those feelings. We are allowing tears to flow. We are talking about Betsy. We are talking about our memories of her. And so far, granted we're only five days in to not having our dog as of the day that this podcast is publishing, but so far it does not seem like this event is being stored as traumatic energy in any of our bodies. And I absolutely believe it's because of the nervous system awareness and education that we have. And that's one of the reasons why I put this podcast out week after week. I don't get paid a dime for a single episode. I've never put an ad on any episode and I will continue putting it out there because I believe that nervous system education and trauma healing resources should be accessible and available 
to everyone, regardless of your income level, whether or not you can afford therapy, whether or not you can afford a psychologist or a psychiatrist or expensive online courses or programs, this information should be accessible and available to everyone. Everyone has a right to know how their nervous system works, the ways that it changes and activates to help us navigate through potentially life and death situations. And in our modern age, we react to stress that is not life and death in life and death ways because our bodies, our nervous systems haven't yet evolved out of that, right? Our nervous systems still don't know how to distinguish between the bear in the woods and the bill collector who comes and knocks on our doors. Like it perceives both as a trauma um, or as a life or death situation that has the potential to become trauma, excuse me. So that's why I'm still doing what I'm doing. And I want to invite you personally to consider becoming a supporter of the podcast for as little as $5 per month you can support this podcast so that nervous system education and trauma healing resources remain accessible and affordable to everyone. And if $5 a month is too much for you, I completely understand. I'm speaking to the people who have an extra five bucks a month, who are able to afford, you know, an expensive Starbucks coffee. That's literally what I'm asking for here is for the price of a Starbucks coffee once a month, you are helping to financially support this work so that people who can't afford therapy or people who can't access courses or online programs or hiring coaches or any of that can still listen to this podcast and get that nervous system education and some trauma healing resources. So please consider partnering with me to financially support the show. It's kind of like Patreon. It's just not on Patreon, but it works the very same way. So you can go to lindsaylockett.com forward slash circle to support the show for $5 a month. Choose the I am a grateful listener option. That's the $5 a month option. You can set it up to automatically pay so you don't have to think about it every month. And you're supporting me, you're supporting my family, and you are supporting literally thousands and thousands of other people who are listening to this podcast on a weekly basis and who value what I'm putting out into the world. So thank you so much for considering a partnership with the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast. So I'm going to be moving on to the topic of today's podcast. I have on the show today, Mike Gavoni. Mike is a certified holistic health and wellness coach and a certified addiction recovery coach. For over 15 years as a person in recovery, Mike has walked a path of healing and transformation, and it is his passion and purpose to support others on their journeys of recovery. Integrative recovery coaching is all about taking an integrative holistic approach to life and recovery. There are many parts that make us human, and to experience overall well-being and healing, Mike has found that addressing the whole person is essential, mind, body, and spirit. It is his deepest aspiration to help guide you to the shore of freedom to live your happiest and most fulfilled life in recovery. And before you turn off this episode because you think that it's only for people who are in recovery from alcoholism and addiction, I want to encourage you to keep listening because I have not personally struggled with 
alcoholism or addiction, but I come from a long line of family members who have. Both of my parents have dealt with alcoholism and addiction. I have several grandparents who were alcoholics and drug addicts. I have cousins who have been alcoholics and drug addicts. It runs thick in my family, and it is only by the grace of God that I did not go down an alcoholic or addict path because I definitely, definitely had the tendency to do that or the model to do that from what I learned from my parents, grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles growing up because it was all around me. Like that was definitely a possibility for my life. And I really don't have an explanation as to why I didn't go down that path. But what I gained from this episode with Mike was a greater understanding of why alcohol and drugs seems like an appealing choice to someone who is really dealing with deep, deep, unresolved, unprocessed trauma that is stored inside their bodies. And they just want to feel peaceful and connected and more comfortable and they're just doing the best they can and trying to adapt to dealing with this energy of trauma that is stored inside their bodies. And so it helped me to have a lot more compassion and understanding for why some of the members in my family made the choices that they made. And of course, I'm not excusing their choices because of course, being the child of someone who's an addict or alcoholic or the family member of someone who's an addict or an alcoholic, that in and of itself is also a traumatizing experience. But if that's you and you aren't personally dealing with addiction, I still want to encourage you to listen to this episode because it sort of will give you a peek into how the brain and nervous system of an addict works. And their brains and nervous systems don't actually work that much differently than the rest of us. Uh, Their addiction is another adaptation of their nervous systems to deal with the dysregulated and chaotic state that they're living in. So please keep listening, whether you are an alcoholic or an addict or not, or if you know someone who is, you are going to learn a lot in this episode. And even if you know no one who is an addict or an alcoholic, and you are not one yourself, this episode is really, really deep. And I love how well our conversation wove together the elements of the nervous system, polyvagal theory, addiction, alcoholism, and consciousness and spirituality. So I'm very excited about this episode. In this episode with Mike Avoni, we share Mike's crazy story of childhood abuse, opioid addiction, and how he recovered from that. Like you are not even going to believe the story that this guy has lived through. We discuss addiction and alcoholism as an adaptation of the nervous system to regulate a dysregulated internal environment. We differentiate between getting sober and healing from trauma. Those are two different things. Just because you get clean and sober doesn't mean you've healed. We also share how Mike healed himself from opioid and alcohol addiction, ulcerative colitis, and multiple chemical sensitivity. We talk about how addiction and alcoholism aren't actually about the substances at all. We discuss the role of the social engagement system of polyvagal theory and why addicts isolate themselves. We share how Mike encourages his clients to be in awareness of their bodies to heal from the trauma story that led them to substance abuse. 
We discussed the differences in healing addiction through cognitive narrative therapy, such as AA, and somatic body-centered therapy. We challenge the 12-step recovery language that is um, whenever you're in a 12-step program and you say, hello, my name is XYZ and I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict, Mike and I are challenging that and whether or not it's truly supportive of the healing and reestablishment of an identity while healing from addiction. We share the role of spirituality in healing and trauma. We discuss the role of ancestral trauma in addiction. We share Mike's take on people in recovery using psychedelic medicine and exploring altered states of consciousness. And we talk about the trauma of abusers and perpetrators and how they need to heal too. And something that I've gotten in a lot of trouble with on social media is my perspective that hurting people hurt people. And the reason why we have people who are abusers, people who are perpetrators, is because they are also dealing with trauma. And we don't excuse their behavior, but we hold space for the fact that they wouldn't hurt people if they were not deeply hurting themselves. And I believe that everyone deserves to heal. And we are not going to heal the world by inflicting more pain or punishment on people who have caused harm. I believe in rehabilitative justice and transformative justice. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I'm learning. But I absolutely do not believe in a punishment model of justice. I believe in a healing model of justice. And that means that perpetrators, including alcoholics and addicts, deserve access to healing trauma healing resources, and nervous system education too. So that was a really long intro. Thank you for sticking with me. Now I'm going to turn on my interview with Mike Gavoni, and I hope you stick through it to the very end and enjoy. Hey, Mike, welcome to the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast. Thanks for being here. Lindsay, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you and be able to share with your audience today. Oh my gosh, me too. In the very little I know about you, I know that I want you to tell your story. So please do that. Yeah. So when people always say that to me, the first thing that comes to mind is how much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> my story, there's a lot of layers and I truly believe we all have a story, right? As Joseph Campbell says, we're the hero of our own story. So Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm the hero of my story. I know you're the hero of your story. And especially when it comes to healing and becoming who we're supposed to be in the world, we all have a story. So my story, I'm going to kind of give you the, the nuts and bolts or the meat and potatoes of, of the story. And then we can go from there. Since this is a podcast about healing trauma, disclosing some of those big meat and potatoes portions of it is helpful and supportive, I think. So my story began really, especially my story of trauma began when I was in my mother's womb and my mom experienced uh, a trauma while I was in her womb. And that trauma was finding out about my dad's secret. And I think that was my introduction to swimming in a sea of cortisol. And I think that set the tone for me to have uh, neurological and immune system issues as I grew to be an adult. As we know, uh, trauma can be passed down generationally. And I for sure got a heavy dose from both sides of mom and dad. So dad was a religious figure. Dad at that point had derobed from being a Catholic priest and married my mother. 
And at this point, he had a big congregation and a church. And my mom discovered him watching pornography of the same sex, which meant he was gay and no, no problem if you're gay. There's other you know, layers to the story that we found out, such as my dad had accusations of being a pedophile while he was in the priesthood that we didn't know about. So Pandora's box was really open when um, my mom discovered him watching pornography and she had to flee with her unborn child, which was me and my sister who was two years old at the time. So as she came to this conclusion to flee, of course, there was a lot of stuff going on within her. I was being affected in her womb. And at that point in the eighties, no one believed her. No one believed her story because at that point, of course, we know doctors, priests, they had the final say. We didn't question religious figures back then like we now question them. When you have an organization that comes out with thousands of pedophiles, such as the Catholic Church, we have to begin to you know, pay attention and see what's really going on, understand there's more than what we're aware of. So my mom was helpless in the sense of here she is. She's the wife of this pastor. He has a deep, dark secret. She's pregnant with a child. She has another one. And boy, what does she do? So her parents, unfortunately, my grandparents uh, didn't believe her either because they were part of my dad's church and they took his side. And now here my mother was with us and not knowing what to do. And that led to her using alcohol, which later on she couldn't take care of us anymore because of her alcoholism, because of her trauma. Now she lost custody to my father. So my father raised my sister and I, and now that we look back at it, to be honest with you, I don't think my mom was capable of raising us. And my dad was stable. He did have income. He did have access to financial resources. So he was able to provide for us. But you can only imagine, we don't have emotional support. My dad didn't have a paternal instinct. So as I grew up in my household, there was a lot of disconnection. There was a lot of shaming. There was a lot of, lot of feeling like I didn't belong. So I took the streets at a young age, 11 years old, started uh, smoking pot. So I smoked my first joint at 11. I was drinking, you know, Jack Daniels and, and beers by 13, 14. And off I went into the world of addiction. From there, I began to explore with other substances. And eventually at 18 years old, I lost my shorts to Oxycontins. Because of the pain and trauma, I was using Oxycontins to escape the pain. And if we look back, it makes perfect sense because now we know the opioid pathways of the brain are the same pathways that light up with a mother's love. I never had a mother's love, but when I took this substance, my pathways lit up. I felt this warm sense. I felt a sense of ease and Oxycontins were love to me. They were peace. They were feeling comfortable in my own skin. And eventually, like all things that lead to a lot of substances that, that we get in, get caught up in is they there's a double-edged sword there. They eventually turn their back. And they did on me at the end when I was doing $500 a day worth the Oxycontins. And I, at this point, had left my home because like my mom, I discovered my dad through watching pornography, I, fought, I, I discovered him the same way my mom did 16 years prior when I was in her womb. And just to touch upon that for a little bit, I'm very intuitive. I've always been guided by the angels. I've always been connected spiritually, not so much in the Christian lineage per se, but I felt like I've always been connected to spirit. And one day spirit told me to go look under his mattress. And I did. And there I found the pornography. And I knew something was going on at that time. And it was a very unhealthy environment. So I left. 
And here I am now I'm 18 years old at a friend's house, struggling on an Oxycontins. And eventually I reached out to my mom who was in my life, but distant with her own issues. And I reached out for help saying, mom, I can't stop doing these pills. So she brought me to my doctor's office. At that point, it was my pediatrician's office. I was 18. I was strung out on opiates and I went there to see him. He examined me and he said, okay, you're ready to go. You're okay. And I said, all right, doc, ready to go where? He said, you're ready to go to detox. And I looked at him with the hairy eyeball and I said, I'm not going to detox because at the time, I don't think this way now, but at the time, People who couldn't do it themselves went to detox. People who were weak went to detox. So I looked him in the eye, I said, I'm not going to detox. So I went out and I got some little wafers of methadone on the street. And I detoxed myself off of $500 a day habit. Now, 30 days into that journey, I was crawling out of my skin. And at that point, the truth of the in the depth of what what my dad's story was about started surfacing when other accusations of of pedophilia from priests started coming out and my father warned me and my sister that something could come out now if you can only imagine here i am 18 years old thank god i just graduated high school and now my father went from being holier than now as a preacher to now being a pedophile so my whole world was flipped upside down and i was afraid and petrified of this coming out of the news of people finding out I was connected to him and think about the shame of as a male being connected as your dad, you know, molesting boys in a seminary. That was so much to deal with. It was like holding up a tsunami wave. So 30 days off Oxycontins and it comes out in the newspaper his story. And I said to myself, if I can stay sober through this, I can stay sober through anything. Almost 19 years later, I haven't touched an Oxycontin. So I put that stuff down. Two years later, I was still using alcohol, still smoking grass. And two years after that, though, I hit a depression and I put everything down. So I've been clean and sober for about 16 years. And that led me to finding a, a career not that I thought what I do today, but I was in an office, I was living, I was traveling, I was having a good life. And I bought a home. And when I bought a home, I was under a lot of stress. And I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So now I have an illness at about 25 years old, I'm about five years sober, and I get a diagnosis with, with ulcerative colitis. Now we know the issues are in the tissues, we know the trauma resides in the body. I still hadn't done my trauma work, although I put the drugs and alcohol down. This is a big thing for the listeners. If you've been suffering or you have a history of addiction and you're still suffering from other symptoms per se, disconnection, disease, uh, anxiety, depression, can't have a successful relationship, feeling like you can't access the present moment. All of these are, are symptoms of unprocessed, un unresolved trauma. So here I am with irritable bowel disease and really suffering. I went to Western medicine. They diagnosed me. They gave me a bunch of pills. I took them and went on with my life. I was getting worse and worse to the point where I developed a multiple chemical sensitivity because we know the gut and the brain are so intricately connected. The inflammation was going from my colon to my brain. It was tripping off my amygdala through my sense of smell. So every time I smelt a chemical, I was being thrown into fight or flight. 
I didn't know what to do. And at the end, after seeing some of the best physicians in the world, the best hospitals in Boston, they said, we don't know what to do with you, Michael, but if you want to remove your colon, here's a business card for a surgeon. The medication I was on was destroying my liver. He said, you might need a liver transplant in eight years if you don't take care of your liver. So I looked these guys both in the face and knew it was a result of the medication and I wasn't going to heal in this paradigm. So I left Western medicine. I'm not anti-Western medicine. It's just part of my story. I left and never stepped foot again. That was seven years ago. Today, I have a colon. Today, I have a liver. I'm healthy today. But the beautiful thing about that experience was everything I just shared with you up until now, my childhood trauma, yes, molestation is part of my story. I'm not sure if it was from my dad. I'm not sure if that happened from my dad, but it happened from someone else. And I have all these big hurdles, but it didn't touch what I experienced with multiple chemical sensitivity. And at the end, I retreated in the world, retreated from the world rather into the woods, as I shared with you, Lindsay, and I began to practice Buddhist meditation. I really resonated with the teachings of alleviation from suffering Meditation was the only thing that allowed me to calm my autonomic nervous system and calm the reaction from the overactive amygdala, the fight or flight response in my brain. And lo and behold, I had a profound mystical experience as a result of going inward and facing the pain. Now, things happen during that experience when they talk about animals coming to see you, the universe cradling you. It's ineffable. You can't explain it. It's beyond conceptualization. So explaining and sharing what that experience was like is difficult because it's beyond the thinking mind. And that was the catalyst to me of healing my body, of actually finding my life's purpose, which, you know, was what I do today. And that was really the catalyst of the healing. So in a nutshell, that's my story. That's so freaking amazing. Oh my gosh. So what is it that you actually do today? You're an integrative holistic recovery coach. You work with addicts and alcoholics. How are you working with them and how are you supporting them? Yeah. So through my own experience in studies and following the work of people like Gabo Mate, addiction is a, is a result of pain and trauma. I have yet to meet someone who suffers from addiction without a history of trauma. Now, people's understanding of trauma is often, I have to have gone through war, I have to have been beaten or sexually molested. And that's not necessarily what trauma is per se. That's, that is trauma, but it's not the only thing that's that is trauma. So people who are addicted are suffering from pain. They're searching outside of themselves, trying to regulate their internal environment, trying to find some peace, trying to find some connectivity, trying to find their voice, their power. And my work is all about helping people feel comfortable in their own skin by bringing them home to their body, by navigating and creating a container for them to experience their sensations and feelings in a way that they build this inner resilience that they develop a sense of agency so that they can tolerate the discomfort. I don't even think people have a, a, a problem with the substance per se. They have an inability to be with things as they are. Now, when you experience a lot of childhood neglect and or trauma, the present moment isn't safe, right? Coming home to our bodies doesn't feel good because that's where the trauma lives. So helping them establish a sense of safety, connection, 
and helping them really address, process, resolve, and integrate the story of maybe what happened to them and what they lived through and helping them discharge that from their nervous system so they can take steps forward to build connection, to feel safe in their skin, to not have to take something from the external environment and put it inside themselves. So I do that through practices like somatic experiencing. I'm actually in the training right now. I haven't finished my third year, but I'm in the training for somatic experiencing. So that's a modality I use. I studied under a pioneer in the field of mind-body medicine, Dr. Paul Epstein. So bringing in the aspect of biology and biography, right? How did you become this way as being addicted or sick or whatever the case may be? What was your story like? What did you live through, right? When I went to the doctor at 25 years old with my, with my whole colon ulcerated, do you think he put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, Michael, tell me a story. How did your colon get ulcerated? What did you live through? No. There was none of that. It was take six of these, take two of these, and I'll see you in six months. So listening to the client, holding safe space for them, navigating what's here in the present moment is all the work I do to help people heal. Mm, that's beautiful. It's amazing. You're doing amazing work. Before we started this call, we were discussing a little bit of, I, I have not personally struggled with addiction or alcoholism. I come from a family where addiction and alcoholism run rampant, but I have not personally struggled with those things. Somehow by some miracle, I have not gone down that path. And so I'm wondering what is the trauma-informed approach that you take with the people that you're working with? Yeah. So when people begin to understand that trauma isn't necessarily the experience that they lived through, but it's what actually happened in their body as a result to what they lived through. So helping them and do a little, doing a little psych ed with them and helping them understand what trauma is and how it resides. Because a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I never really dealt with trauma. Or, how was your child? Oh, it was normal. But then you start excavating that ground with them and there's, there's neglect all over the place. But they don't see it. And they don't know. Because a lot of people, they grew up in dysfunctional families. Or for example, I worked in the hospital for three major hospitals in Boston as a recovery coach for the opiate epidemic. And most of them that were strung out on heroin, I asked them, hey, you know, what was it like growing up? And they, oh, I was normal. My father was out, you know, on the piers at Longshoremen and was never home. My mom was an alcoholic. My husband was in Vietnam and all these things that can be extremely traumatizing. They weren't even really understanding that this still lives on in you. And this is why you're here in this hospital bed 20 years later. So helping them first understand about what trauma is and how it creates a dysregulation in the nervous system. I take a lot of work from Stephen Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges with the polyvagal theory, understanding that we have these different gears to speak in our nervous system, sympathetic arousal, right? Fight or flight, anxiety, too much energy, dorsal vagal shutdown, depression, cut off, disconnection, ventral vagal, your most evolutionary part, right? Connection, safety, present moment. And helping them understand that throughout each day, they're accessing these different parts of their nervous system. And often what happens with trauma is they get stuck in the subcortical parts, such as the fight or flight response or the shutdown response. So when it comes to addiction, people are like, oh yeah, everyone isolates, you know, my, my, 
my friend or my parent was an alcoholic. They isolated. They No wonder they isolate. It's no mystery. We're disconnected from our social engagement system. We're suffering from the symptoms of trauma. So really giving them some education is really a great first step. And then helping them acclimate and create the ability to pay attention in the here and the now. Because it's impossible for you to process and discharge and heal from the parts of you that are holding these deep emotion if you don't have the capacity to tolerate difficult sensations and feelings. So working on that with them, touching and helping them feel their sit bones on the chair and being mindful and seeing the blue sky and noticing something in their environment that helps them feel grounded and safe. Oh, this beautiful tree in front of me. Oh, what happens when we look there and we concentrate and we sense into nature? Oh, I feel, what do you feel in your body? I feel a sense of ease. So helping them expand that window of tolerance so they're not getting blasted outside of that window of tolerance and being caught in the cyclical loop of dysregulation, hence anxiety, depression, stuck in their mind, their inner critics running the show. So these are really first steps and fundamental steps along the way of helping someone heal from the past. And the story, I share my story with you, but it's not the story that's really important per se. It's the emotion that's connected to the story that lives on in my body. Mm-hmm. So most people, they go to talk therapy and they just talk, 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 which is okay. It's a starting point. It's, there is such thing called narrative medicine. Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful program that supports narrative medicine. Everyone's at a table talking about what happened to them and they feel a part of, they feel, you know, supported. They feel uh, maybe there's a little relief, a little, the monkey's off their back a little bit more, whatever the case may be. But still, as you're ready to do your deep work, there's emotion that's tied there. There's sensations, there's repressed feelings that come with that story and helping the person integrate and resolve those emotions tied to their story. So when they think back of what they lived through, they're not afraid to not only be with it, but they're, they're, they don't have that charge that's connected to it. Does that make sense to you? Totally makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I was sharing with you before we started the recording that I have a little bit of a hot take. And my hot take is that I don't really think that it's serving a purpose for people who are in recovery and working the 12-step program, which I think the 12-step program is amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like I do think that AA and NA and all of those programs are awesome for recovery. So I'm not dissing the program at all. The part that I don't like is the part where every week you go to a meeting and you're always an alcoholic. Hi, my name is Lindsay and I'm an alcoholic. Even if I haven't touched a drink in 20 years, I'm still an alcoholic. And 
I'm a person who believes that the language we use is really important. The, the inner, the inner voice that we're using that inner narrative that we all have going on all the time, the way that we think about ourselves and the way we talk to ourselves is really important. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that, about the, the language of saying I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict, even if you've been sober. And is that something you do with your clients or do you take a different approach? Yeah, I love this. Thank you for bringing this up. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Some clients, that's their paradigm or that's where they're at. And that's serving them. So I respect and honor that. I have clients too that identifying as the alcoholic or addict no longer feels right and resides with their consciousness and they've let that go. So this is a situation where it can be supportive for some people for, I believe, in the beginning of getting into program or really feeling a part of and understanding the truth that, hey, I have an addiction and, you know, alcoholism or, or being an addict, but that's not who they are. That's not who you are. That's not who I am. And I don't want to get all Bible versy on you, but I want to share a, a quote with you from Ephesians. Now, I have a lot of religious trauma, right? And we, we've, we've, we've talked about this and you've experienced it as well. And yet I know Jesus was a great teacher. I can hold them all today. And I just want to read this. And it's from Ephesians. It says, all things, when they are admitted, are made manifest by the light. For everything that is made manifest is light. So. I think there comes a time, or at least there has for me, where my consciousness has shifted to have the direct realization of what I am, rather than a very limited reductionist view as an alcoholic. And that only came by not belief, because belief isn't even enough. That comes with direct realization or experiencing this truth. And what I mean by that is when the great teachers talked about us being eternal, we are eternal consciousness. We are awareness. Void of any identification. But I had to go through the fire in order to have that direct experience. Now, people come into program, and it's easy to keep identifying with that. And it's easy to continue to stay stuck in that narrative around being an addict or alcoholic. And I think at some time, if you want to experience true liberation, you're going to have to get more curious and investigate who you really are beyond those titles. Even like, your, let's just take up your profession. Oh, you're a firefighter. You're a nurse. You're a doctor. Is that really who you are? Or is that something you do in the world? So today, ever since I've had that experience, that, that shift in consciousness, and this isn't for everyone. I don't want to scare everyone. I never step foot back in AA again. I never related to myself as being an alcoholic because that's not who I am. I am 
awareness. I am loving consciousness. And I don't walk around saying that all the time in white robes or anything like that. But when I sit back and resonate in the truth of what's happening here, there's no one here really to hold on to. Yeah. It's all a construct. It's all a construct. In the yeah. great spiritual teachings, you can actually experience that, right? You experience the Christ consciousness. You experience the Buddha nature. You experience the Atman, right? The, these are the paths of spiritual development, of spiritual enlightenment or seeking that. And a lot of people in 12 step, they say they're spiritual and that they're following a spiritual path, but they're still, as Eckhart Tolle would say, Basically, your ability to touch the present moment depends upon how spiritual you are, like to connect into what the isness of what's here. This is the spirit. This is, and yet there, a lot of people are still suffering from symptoms of trauma. And when you're suffering from symptoms of trauma, you don't have access to your higher cortical parts of your brain where you're connected to everything that's here where you're not identified of the wounds of the past. You're not falling into this victim place. You're taking responsibility for what happened. You're touching these different deeper areas of your being in, in, in letting these constructs go. So that's like part of the spiritual journey. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the spiritual journey. That's something that as someone who myself, I've struggled with religious trauma and a big part of my journey was deconstructing and deconverting from Christianity, taking that like knotted ball of thread and, and picking it apart one thread at a time, trying to make sense of everything, asking all the questions I wasn't allowed to ask going to church growing up because if I asked those questions, I was a doubtful sinner, all that kind of stuff. And by the end of it, it was like, okay, I've changed my mind about literally everything. Like I, I no longer believe that being gay is an abomination. I no longer believe that all Christians have to vote Republican. I no longer believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. I no longer believe in like the rapture and like all these things. Okay. I don't believe in these things anymore. Great. And then I thought, all right, I'll just keep going and living my life. But there was this gaping hole where a genuine love for who Jesus was and a genuine, like, I can't even to this day, I still miss standing on a stage and leading worship with my husband and not because I like to hear myself sing and not because I like people watching me. It's just, it's such an experience where you truly feel like you are closer to something that is outside of yourself. And I miss that to this day, but there was a gaping hole there and it was like, okay, now I've deconstructed, I've deconverted, but I have to reestablish some type of a connection to that thing that I know is there that is not me, but is still there. And I can't touch it and I can't feel it and I can't smell it, but I, it's there. And I don't call it God because God for me has a lot of triggery sort of connotation because of Christianity. For me, it's like universal consciousness or it's like source, but it's, I am God and you are God. And that plant over there in my corner is God. And the tree outside my house is God. And like the 
bald eagle flying out over my house is God. Like that to me is what it is. And of course I know to any Christians who are listening, what I'm saying is absolutely heretical, but, but that's where I'm at. I don't know what this has to do with addiction. I sort of just went off on a tangent there, but like I, the spiritual piece was absolutely necessary for me. Like I, I thought for a minute about being an atheist or agnostic. I really did think about that for a bit. And I thought, well, that's the only thing that seems to make sense. Cause I'm a very left brain, like critical thinker kind of person. And I want something to make logical scientific sense. And of course the things that we're talking about here cannot be seen on a microscope and they can't be measured with, I guess they can be measured with some high tech equipment. There are certain things that we can use to measure these things, but it, the spiritual piece was a big part of, of healing for me. And I talk about it all the time with holistic trauma healing, particularly for people who have dealt with religious trauma is don't let the trauma of this dogma that was perpetuated by primarily men that has colonized people all over the world, including white people particularly white women and all women, like don't let that leave a bad taste in your mouth for mm. the richness of a spiritual life and a spiritual practice that is possible outside of that dogma. What say you? For sure. Yeah. And thank you for sharing parts of your story. It's beautiful. But to be catapulted out of that framework and belief system is in itself a spiritual awakening and that takes a lot of guts that takes a lot of courage for someone like you for someone like me to go within and challenge the belief system that we were brought up in now we know these teachers such as christ and so forth didn't teach a lot of the messages we hear from man today but in fact, it's a huge paradigm in of itself that we're healing from now because let's look at part of my story, right? My father was one of the thousands of priests that have hurt children in the name of God. In order for us to heal from this, the shadow has to be exposed and the light of consciousness has to be shined down or shine through. And we're in a very interesting time. Everything right now, these old paradigms are coming up for renegotiation and quite frankly, a lot of them to be collapsed. So it's people like you and me that are leading the way for others to say it's okay to challenge the belief system that you had i was the minister's son can only imagine how washed i was i was the pastor's wife <laughs> totally and yet there's a saying no mud no lotus without the mud the lotus doesn't bloom so we have been gifted this crisis, whether it's internal, external, physical disease for something for us to be, for our cage to be rattled and for this old construct within us to just crumble and fall and for us to get in touch with the God that's within. So when Jesus said, be still and know that I am God, 
God is within you. Mm -hmm. You are God. I am mm -hmm. God. That consciousness is within us. It's actually, and it's outside of us. Mm -hmm. Now, relating that to people in recovery for a moment, everyone in, in 12 step, but there's a power greater than yourself. Yes. Okay. But what about accessing the power within yourself? I think consciousness is the greatest relapse prevention anyone can ever have. And it's the cure, as Gabo Mate says, to addiction, because there's an inner knower that's present that is the gatekeeper of your sense stores, including your thinking, that can use discernment and wisdom to move forward, then to be living from an, un, rather than living from an unconscious place that is that all the wounds are driving, all the wounds are coming from. So what you've done, what I'm doing, the work that we're bringing out into the world is beautiful because we're helping others and helping others take a look at what's going on and saying, it's okay to look. God, that was awesome. I got chills several times during that. Okay. Yeah. Consciousness is the greatest preventer of relapse. Like I just have to sit with that for a minute. That's great. That's really great. On the contrary to that being the case, we're driven by the unconscious. Trauma is held in the subcortical parts of our nervous system. Yeah. We don't have access to the most evolutionary part, present moment, executive function, reasoning, social engagement. Hence, addiction brings everything on the contrary to that. But as Carl Jung says, we don't become enlightened by imagining images of light only by making the darkness conscious. Mm, so yeah. that's the work of healing. And that's my work and my message to people in recovery is, all right, great. You've been in 12 step. You've been in smart recovery, narcotics, and whatever your path is. And yet you don't know what's wrong. You're still suffering, right? Let's take a look deeper what's going on and let's explore that ter territory so you can be free so you can feel comfortable so you can have thriving relationships so you can follow your pur purpose so you can be seen in the world maybe it's a desire for you to share your trauma story which is very difficult and sharing my story to the public took a lot of balls and so that that was a process in itself so when we become conscious we're not suffering from what's underneath we're integrated we can tolerate the present moment we can sense into our sensations, feelings, emotions, and be with them in a new way. When that happens, addiction becomes vestigial. It's like the days when we had a tail. We don't need a tail anymore. So let that shit go. Yeah. Yeah. So a, an unpopular opinion that I have is that labels and diagnoses like mental illness are meaningless, kind of superfluous, not really needed because whether it's anxiety or it's depression or it's insomnia or it's being bipolar or whatever it is, I believe that all of those things are not actually the problem. I believe that they're symptoms of the problem. And whether you have big T, little T trauma, whatever it is, I believe that all of those things are adaptations of our nervous system. It's just, it's, a, it's either a hypo aroused or a hyper aroused nervous system that is 
sending signals throughout the brain that then increase our stress hormones. Our, our adrenal glands are cranking out cortisol or for depressed people, like maybe your body's cranking out more melatonin than you need. So you're a lot more tired than everyone else is, things like that. And I think that psychiatry has a place. Like I have certainly benefited from psychiatry and I'm not dissing anyone who takes medication for anxiety, depression, or any other mental condition, but I know that psychiatric medication did not heal me. Like I know for me, it was something that mediated symptoms and it definitely like helped me feel better. And while I had the help of psychiatric medications, I wanted to start excavating the shit that caused me to need the meds to begin with. And that took me, took me over a year of being on medication and then going off and then I wasn't quite there yet. So I went back on and now I'm like totally off of medication. I'm sleeping. I, I definitely would say I'm healed of anxiety. I'm healed of insomnia. Like I still experience those feelings from time to time for sure, but I don't identify with the diagnosis anymore of being a mentally ill person. Is addiction and alcoholism an adaptation of the nervous system or is it disease? Is it mental illness? Yeah, I don't believe in the disease model of addiction. I don't think there's a place in your brain that says, oh, here's the, here's the disease of alcoholism or addiction that lives here. Is there parts of the nervous system that are disconnected? And for example, the amygdala, like in my situation, being overactive. Sure, are people who suffer from addiction typically suffer from a comorbidity, another, let's just say mental illness diagnosis. Sure. But what's at the root of that? What's where's, why is the disease happening or the disease happening within them? I believe addiction um, is a response to pain and trauma. And I believe that contingent upon how we were brought up specifically in childhood sets the tone for cultivating addiction. But as we know from the scientific literature, we can be predisposed to genes that make us susceptible to becoming addicted. But what triggers the gene? It's, in, it's environment. It's nurturing. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely. So I'll just say a quote from my mentor, Dr. Epstein. And if you believe in the disease model, you can apply it here, or you can look at other ailments of diagnoses in general, such as some in the DSM-5 or whatnot. But he says, dis-ease or disease tells a story, not just about ourselves and a diagnosis, but about ourself in our life. Listening to the story, we are led to the truth of what happened to us in the emotions that lie at the core of our authentic being. So really what's happening is we're, we're disconnected from that authentic self because for whatever reason, it wasn't safe to express, I mean, it wasn't safe to express ourselves. and where I was going with that, when I said, look at your situation, you weren't even allowed to question what was your truth as a little girl? If you were to tell me I have trouble following my heart today, Mike, and trusting what I believe, I would say, Lindsay, of course you do. That is just par for the course, girl. Like you didn't have that as a child. In childhood, we're, we're setting that template of our belief systems, our sense of self. And so I don't fall into the disease model. And I believe that we can heal from addiction, but we have to 
take this biopsychosocial spiritual approach and address the whole person, not just the addiction. Yeah. So there's many layers to that with colitis. Once again, did the doctor take into consideration my biography with my biology? No, he didn't. My biology was totally left on the table, but it's what created the dysbiosis the excessive shooting off of cortisol, epinephrine, cytokines, pro-inflammatory processes are happening because I have trauma from childhood. I was scared. I was taken away from my mom. There were lions and bears all over the place in my life. And that just showed up in my body. So yeah. it's the same context of addiction as well. Yeah. I want to go back to what you mentioned about the the genes um, for addiction. I've done some studying on ancestral trauma and intergenerational trauma, and I think this is just an opinion. This is I'm not quoting any studies here or anything. I think that addiction and alcoholism run in families not because of genes, but because of ancestral trauma. Because whenever your great grandfather dealt with a hard life by drinking, then your grandfather saw your great grandfather deal with that by drinking. And so that's what he knows to deal with, or that's what became acceptable in his life. And then your father sees that in his father, and then you saw that in your father. And so I don't, sure, are there genes? Probably, but I don't know how much of it is actually genetic and how much of it is the product of this is what was modeled to us. This is what we saw as acceptable, even if it was unsafe and unhealthy, even if we knew there was something wrong with it as a kid, we don't have any other coping skills when we wake, when we grow up as an adult and our adults. Like, I, I think that it's very related to ancestral trauma, even more than it's genetic. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Once again, I, I don't know if there's any literature backed up in that. I know you're saying that's your perspective. I think it's, I think it's quite appropriate. Once again, I haven't met any one person that has suffered from addiction that hasn't suffered from trauma. So things are getting passed down, whether I was going to say consciously or unconsciously, trauma is passed down unconsciously. And it comes to people like us that say no more. And we have to do the work of our ancestors. Yeah. So I believe I, I, I do like your process in regards to thinking that it's generational trauma. It's trauma. We're, we're suffering from trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's trauma. <laughs> There's actually a lot going on on Instagram right now. There's a couple of really big accounts that like they're standing up and they're taking this alternative approach and being like, not everything that's wrong with you is because of trauma. You can't blame trauma for every ache and pain you have in your body. You can't blame trauma for every bad habit you have. Not everything is trauma. And I'm having a hard time with that. Like that's one of those like things, my motto in life is I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And so that's something that makes me really uncomfortable. And my initial reaction is just turn away or like unfollow or scroll past those things. I don't want to see those things because that doesn't line up with what I believe to be true. But then there's part of me that's no, that thing that makes you uncomfortable, lean into that, explore that some more. What does that feel like for you? Why do you think that's coming up? I'm curious what your thoughts are, or if you've even seen what I'm talking about. There's just this like secondary movement of like therapists and people who are like, not everything that's wrong with you is trauma. Stop blaming trauma for everything the root of all evil is not trauma. What are your thoughts on that? 
Since the very first episode, the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast has been ad-free and freely available. For just $5 a month, you can financially support the show so that nervous system education and trauma healing resources remain accessible and available to everyone. Go to lindsaylockett.com forward slash circle to support the show. Yeah, so once again, I think everything's on a spectrum. I think everything's on a spectrum to some degree or another. And I think there are bad habits and ways I conduct myself in the world that are directly correlated to not feeling safe and that are directly correlated to trauma. And then I think there's behaviors and things that I suffer from now in the life I live today that are a result of being a human being. I think it's on a spectrum. And I I really appreciate your ability to get curious about what really triggers you about that. And I think that's a great place for exploration. I will say this, there are many people with fancy letters next to their name. One in particular, I talked to not too long ago, who's in the field of addiction and he has an MD in the the end of his name. And he basically told me, I don't don't believe in an addiction and trauma method. I, I believe like everyone should just suck it up like I did. And I was completely floored. And why I'm completely floored about this is because that man does the work that he does today and he's missing. It's like the, it's like the iceberg. You see a little piece of the iceberg and then underneath is about 75% more of the iceberg that this man's a really accredited professional, intelligent person. And yet his capacity for understanding trauma is, is the tip of the iceberg. And his, it just shows me the inability he must have to really connect with his patients to make a difference. As Carl Jung says, I'm a believer in quotes, or I love quotes. He talks about the doctor can only be as useful to the point where he has examined his himself. Mm-hmm. Or you either have to have gone through or going through the process in order to initiate the healing to the patient, only the wounded heal. So to get off a little tangent on this is I don't think everything may be trauma per se, but it's on a spectrum. But there are many people who are coming from the other side, possibly, that don't even understand how trauma manifests in the body. Hence, I go to, quote unquote, the best doctors in the world, and no one even asked me what my story was. You have cancer, heart disease, obesity. How many people do you think are suffering? In fact, the ACE study was cultivated when Dr. Folletti handed out that first ACE questionnaire and the women were responding that they were sexually abused and that their weight actually was like a protective mechanism for them. When a doctor comes to, when, when people come to a lot of doctors, not every doctor, and they're obese, once again, coming back to the trauma aspect is, do you think the doctor is actually saying, oh, are you protecting yourself from something with this weight? So trauma is misunderstood. It's now just coming out full blown and, and you're hearing all about it. But once again, I think we have to have some flexibility in understanding there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to really understanding trauma. Yeah, for sure. 
Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. And yeah, I just want to be clear to everyone. I don't actually have a study that I can cite. It's just a theory that I have just from observation of my own family and other families. Okay. So I want to shift gears on you again. I really liked the direction our conversation was going when we were talking about consciousness. I got really excited and I got all lit up and I've shared on the podcast before that I have used substances that alter my state of consciousness and that those have been beneficial for me at times. And in fact, one altered state of consciousness was the catalyst for this podcast. It's been a pretty big part of my journey, but it's definitely not like I'm telling everyone you're just one mushroom trip away from like changing your life. Maybe you are, but I think the work that we do, I think the the work is like the daily work. It's not just like doing mushrooms all the time. And I know we were chatting about this. So what is your take on using substances that alter the state of consciousness as a person in recovery? Yeah. Awesome. I love this. Thank you for bringing me into this territory. And I'm really excited that this uh, podcast was that came to light as a result of an experience. I've had some of the similar experiences that have brought pieces of my work out into the world too, from those experiences. So yeah, my take on this is all right. Now, if you're in recovery, just pause and just take a moment to just open your mind. And a lot of people in the recovery community are actually really minded about this right now, just because it's coming so quick through like MAPS program, like MDMA is most likely going to be legal and MDMA psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is going to, we're going to see that in, in the next year or two. We're probably going to see the legalization and therapeutic support of, of psilocybin with trained professionals. So this is all coming out and we've been using plants and funguses for a long time to heal. But in fact, many of us who live in 2021 have been influenced by government, by propaganda, and really the suppression of these sacred sacraments for the beneficial of, let's say, not so healthy entities and places of power. So as a person in recovery, I really believe in the power of plants and fungus to promote healing. But I want to say for the record, I don't believe it's for everyone. And I believe it has to be done in the right context with the right intention. And there are other parameters as well, such as set intention, setting, where's the environment, dose, what you're taking, substance is important whether or not you have someone there to guide you and facilitate or a sitter with you. So as we know the, the therapeutic benefits when all these parameters are met in a therapeutic way that people are having unbelievable transformative experiences in healing from a lot of trauma. Now, I think, or not necessarily what I think, but what the studies show too is they're giving us access to what's in the subconscious. These substances bypass what's called the default mode network, which is the network uh, or part of the network that creates the sense of self. So we're able to see through or see in different ways when we're on these substances that shift our perception. Now, once again, going back to consciousness, the plant themselves per se may not really be healing, but it's the shift in consciousness that we have to what's exposed to us in the journey, what we're holding on to. Maybe some things 
uh, that happened to us that were suppressed so far down that we didn't even recognize it come through. And you might say to yourself, well, why would I ever want to do that? That's what's driving the addiction or driving the pain inside is what's down there below our consciousness of feeling that great disconnect from that wholeness that's there as well. So I am a big fan of using psychedelics in the right context to promote healing and well-being. Even if you're in recovery. Even if you're in recovery, especially if you're in recovery and you've done a lot of different modalities that haven't been able to help you unlock and or heal. Because I, I want to go back. You said this earlier, and I want to make sure that this comes across really loud and clear. This is an important message is that just because you're clean and sober doesn't mean you've healed. Absolutely. I love it. Yes, absolutely. Or my quote is you can be years in recovery and still be suffering from the symptoms of trauma. Yeah. Love it. So I, what I want people to hear from this is like, this episode isn't just about trauma and addiction and recovery. It's about getting clean is awesome. That's a big step forward in your journey. And it's a necessary step, but don't end there. Don't get clean and then stop. Right. Getting sober is just the first step. It's like addressing the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Everything underneath all that is where you need to go to experience healing. Now, I believe recovery and healing are two different things. Or if you want to look at it as I'm recovering the lost part of myself or recovering the wholeness that was there before my trauma, great. But a lot of people now recovery is, okay, I just put recovery when it equates to abstinence, like that's not healing. Right. I didn't get sober to not feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't get sober to not have a, a, a healthy, thriving relationship. I didn't get sober to, you know, not live my dream. Like all these things I, I wanted to do. In fact, even nine years into recovery, I didn't know that I was suffering from symptoms of unhealed, unprocessed trauma. And I'll have to say too, early in my recovery, if you would have tell me I was still suffering from a little wounded boy inside of me that needed love and attention that was driving the bus, I would say, what are you out of your mind? Look at me. I'm 180 pounds. I'm jacked out of my mind and I'm strong as an ox. But little did I know all that was a self-protective mechanism too. So it's once again, it's, there's a lot of layers to this, but getting sober and getting into recovery is just the first step. Yeah, absolutely. How do you work with your clients with the consciousness piece? Like how, because when you explain consciousness to someone, especially someone who's come out of religion or maybe is still in religion. It sounds like a very new agey millennial spiritual term, which I know that it's totally not. Or maybe I'm speaking from my own experience because I hadn't heard the term consciousness from a, spir a spiritual perspective inside of Christianity, except for it had this connotation of that's new age and we don't do that because that's not pleasing to God. So how do you for religious and non-religious clients alike, how do you bring about this concept of consciousness and help them to wake up. Yeah. Awesome. So just to touch on what you just said with the religion, I want to recommend a book for you. It's called the yoga of Jesus. And when Jesus talks about the seven candles, the seven houses in the Bible, he was talking about the chakras, ascension, moving up, awakening. I've actually talked about this on my Instagram stories a lot lately that I totally believe Jesus was a real guy. I really believe that he was like woke as fuck, like woke in a good way, not in the like weird culty leftism way that we're seeing now with like cancel culture, but he was awake. He was aware he was enlightened 
And he was trying to point people towards consciousness. And like when he said the road is narrow and few are those who find it, I don't think he meant the road to salvation on the cross. I think he meant the road to like consciousness and awakening and being in this present moment, knowing that you are the I am, that you are I am and I am, and I am not a podcaster and I am not a woman and I am not, I just am. I'm not the labels. I'm not anxiety. I'm not an alcoholic. Like I just am. I think that's what Jesus was trying to tell us somehow as things tend to happen man got a hold of it and decided to capitalize on it and decided to go use it as an excuse for like colonizing and decided to use it as a way to suppress women and decided to make money off of it and advance an agenda that's what happened but jesus himself i think if jesus was alive right now and he saw the shit that's being done like in his name and quote unquote for his glory i think he would want to throw up Honestly, like, I think he would be totally disgusted and he would be like, you guys missed the whole fucking point. <laughs> yes. And, and it absolutely. And now what's beautiful is me and you can reflect and we can say, holy shit, my, my parents never knew God. They never really knew the truth. My father has a master's degree in theology, Boston University, priest, this, this. He didn't know God. Who, who hurts people when you know God? And it doesn't mean he's not a Buddha either. It means he hadn't done his work to heal his shadow. Yeah. Like for people listening, I've actually talked about this a lot lately and I, and I get called like a perpetrator of harm because of it. Like your dad had fucking trauma too. And your dad was a wounded little boy who had his power taken away from him early on, who didn't have a voice, who was like, he was hurting too. And he like, for sure, didn't need to have access to like little boys, but he deserves just as much healing as anyone else. Absolutely. And that's a big shift to be able to hold that, that we're all Buddhas, we're all Christ's. Yeah. And I actually got to have the conversation uh, that I needed and asked him who perpetrated him. And he told me, wow. so he disclosed to me what happened to him. So that was beautiful and, and healing, but let me go back to answer your question is now I'm going to jump out on a limb here a little bit and say that all these paths to awakening have some form of meditation, contemplation to quote Trump or Rumpage, who was incar incarnated master back in Tibet, who came to brought Buddhism to the West. He has a very, you know, profound uh, statement. He says, meditation is the only way. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean you have to be uh, a Buddhist to, and, and say, okay, I, I have to be a Buddhist and meditate. All these other Judaism, Christianity, they all have this form of going within. But are we actually doing the practices that promote or support ascension to move up no we have this blind belief and say oh just go to church and you'll be good most of these people are living a half-assed life and and doing a bunch of shit on the side but it takes practice it takes as Rumi says those who give light must first burn you gotta burn baby and that requires facing the parts of you that you don't want to face 
that requires holding the both, both the aspect of the light in the dark and integrate them and choosing to, to love and support other beings in the process of wherever they are and being that light in the world, rather than being some sort of judgmental, hypocritical person that says, oh, I'm a Christian and you're not, so you're going to hell. But going back again, how do you begin to help a person become awake? Let's begin to engage in some sort of self-awareness practice. With addiction, look at the contrary. You're running all the time. You're seeking all the time. You're pushing away what's uncomfortable and gravitating towards what you think is comfortable, substance, behavior, whatever it may be. How do we begin to rest in the stillness and touch into what's here? How can we begin to befriend the parts of us that are holding the wounds in and that are actually holding the pain? So I think I'm not going to say everyone just sit on a meditation cushion right away, but can you begin to get quiet? Can you begin to pull away from what's, can you begin to pull away from your distractions a bit? Can you begin to spend time in nature and begin to ground in, in, in the earth? Now, Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, he says, the miracle is not walking on water. The miracle is walking alive and present on the green earth. That's good. So helping the person once again, establish the ability to be with what's here is, is paramount, is vital to actually working with everything else from there. Mm -hmm. So self-reflective practices, self-awareness practices, spending time in nature, connecting with your breath. Your breath is the bridge from the unconscious to the conscious, the breath of life, the breath is named a bunch of times in spiritual and traditions because it has the ability to anchor us here too. That's why in Buddhist practice, we use the breath because it's here. It's a way of shifting your attention to settling this monkey mind, settling this mind that we perceive as the truth when this mind in fact is nothing but phenomena running through it. And the natural mind or the original mind is pure as, crystal, as a crystal. And when we begin to settle that, we begin to see what's actually going on here. See, most of us live from our chin to our crown in, in our head all day, believing the, the, the stories and the voices, but all of that isn't even reality. Yeah. That's why settling down and going within, be still and know that I am God, awakening that consciousness inside. Once we begin to do that, the, even the fear of death begins to loosen its grip. Because what's observing this? What's, what's questioning? What's holding this? Oh, there's something in there that's, that's, diff, that's separate from this continuation of the thinking. So separating and, and creating that gap through meditation is important for the person to begin to awaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Did I lose you? No, you didn't lose me at all. I'm tracking. I'm totally tracking. <laughs> <laughs> this is exciting. I'm just where I'm at is like 
we have 15 minutes left in this conversation and I'm afraid to ask you another question because I want you to be able to take as much time as you need to respond. So I, I can give you a short version. Like I have lots <laughs> more questions I want to ask. Like I want to talk to you about, I would like to talk to you about your experience in altered states of consciousness. I would like to talk to you about your spiritual awakening, religious trauma, and like how you're transmuting that, which obviously you've alchemized that into something that a lot of people are struggling to do. I have so much more I want to talk to you about. How about for this one, why don't we just plan on recording another one after this? Can we do a part two? Sure. Yeah. Let's Amazing. Do a part two. All right. So then before we close this one out, can you tell people where to find you and how to work with you? For sure. You can find me on the net at uh, www.mikegavoni. Last name is G-O-V as in Victor, O, N as in Nancy, I as in India, mikegavoni.com. There's my website. If you're interested and you like what you want to schedule a complimentary uh, consult call, I'll be more than happy to chat with you. You can also listen to my podcast called the Healing Beyond Recovery Podcast. And I'm thinking social media, it's pretty much Mike Gavoni. Instagram, Mike Gavoni and Facebook as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll have all of that listed in the show notes uh, for this episode. And then you will be back right. for, for part two. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Did you enjoy the show? Awesome. Here's what you can do next. First, make sure you're subscribed. Second, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few moments to rate the podcast. Finally, you can partner with me to keep putting this healing information into the world. For just $5 per month, you will help keep the show ad-free and freely available. If you want to go deeper and connect with me and other trauma healers in community, I invite you to join the Trauma Healers Circle. This community is where the magic happens. You get access to bonus podcast episodes, monthly Zoom calls, and most importantly, you'll find your people. Go to lindsaylockett.com forward slash circle to join. 